Turn with me, please, to the first chapter of First Timothy. We're going to center our attention particularly upon one huge verse of Scripture. We have uh, considered and been considering why the Lord Jesus Christ came. And when Joseph and Mary were given the name of the Lord Jesus, he was to be named Jesus. We considered his name. That took us through a whole study of the meaning of the name Jesus. The emphasis on he shall save his people from their sins within the context of the meaning of the very name Jesus. We read this morning that when uh, the angelic message went out to those shepherds on the hillside of Judea, the message was unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Why he came, even in those narrations, that two narrations that teach us about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're there. Read on in Luke chapter 2, and you find the words the Lord Jesus Christ first speaks as recorded to us. I must be about my father's business. The father's business, of course, was the cross, redemption, the saving of sinners by God's wondrous sovereign grace chosen in him before the foundation of the world, given as a gift to the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem. And so, last Wednesday evening, we looked in Galatians chapter 4, and in Galatians chapter 4 further, we find out why the Lord Jesus Christ had come. In the fullness of the time, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You see, the scriptures major upon why he came. The gospel involves why he came, who it is, and why he came. Not a sentimental little baby that is the object of the world's Christmas. Not a babe in a manger. He's a living, reigning, sovereign Lord, having accomplished his work. Why did he come? The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners whom I am chief. Now I'd like to read it in context beginning at verse 12 of 1 Peter 1. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Then he brings in this gospel declaration. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, we're not going to major upon what he means by whom I am chief, but certainly as we go on to read in the context, he means not simply that he thinks he's the worst sinner that ever lived. He's the first one of them in his mind and heart. And uh, he led others into sin. He was a leader into sin. He was the chief of them, as he says. Howbeit, for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first, as he was the first or chief sinner, as he wrote, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, we're going to center our attention, though, upon the sweeping statement that's written under divine inspiration, words given by the Holy Spirit through Paul in verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Every genuine expositor of the word of God, every preacher who is charged with the responsibility to preach the word understands something. There's a horrific task to bring expansive and eternal truth into one comprehensive short statement without leaving out essentials. But that is done in Scripture. It's amazing. Many times a short passage or a verse or a phrase God has used to save many. To hear one thing proclaimed, the seed of the word sown in some way, God is able to take that and cause it to spring up into life eternal. It's a wondrous thing. And I remind you, Charles Spurgeon, you remember how he was saved? You remember the short thing he heard God used to save him? Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Many have been saved. Many have heard John 3.16 and have come to know and trust the Lord, have the work of God done in them. There's nothing like the word of God. It's alive under the power and work of the Holy Spirit. But here in 1 Timothy 1.15, with one sweeping statement, we might consider this as the gospel in seed form. You know, it's a marvelous thing to me in creation. And certainly ought to be in our eyes to think that in the moment of conception, there's a microscopic human being. Everything that's in you now, by nature, was in you in that moment. You realize that? Every potential was in you. Every potential ability. Everything 
that only needed to be developed was in you. Matter of fact, of course, recent relatively is found out about DNA. That's an incredible thing. Those who discovered DNA were evolutionists and they looked at that when they recognized what they saw and said the human race sprang from a, sprang from a single pair. It blows evolution out of the water. Even true, but we're not getting into scientific things. True science substantiates creation, sets it forth in truth. What about a tree? Look at a massive, big oak tree. You know where it came from? Where did it come from? Tiny little thing that was put into the ground. Tiny seeds. When God created all things, it all had its own seeds. Would reproduce. It's a marvelous thing. It's an act of God. It's divine that only God could do. Indeed. And who but God could take his purpose of the ages and condense it through a man into one all-encompassing sentence. And that's big. It's huge. There is nothing like the Word of God. Here also, Paul, to whom Christ gave personally his gospel, the Lord Jesus taught this apostle personally. He begins to use a formula which will be reproduced and repeated four times only in his last three epistles that affirm some of the most important truths he preached throughout his whole apostolic career. This is a faithful saying. This is something that you can receive, believe, understand, accept with all acceptation. So, should we not pray indeed that the older we get, that the more the Lord would enable us to know things that are essential. This is essential. To know things that matter. Not being carried away with the worries, the anxieties, the things of this world. We're warned not to do so, of course. We're taught to be careful for nothing. We're taught to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and not be carried away with worry about tomorrow. We can be taken away by escapisms. I look at the movie industry. Be distracted by so many things, so many pressures that come in this world. Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but how many things are needful? One thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken from her. God grant us, the older we get, to realize that more and more and more, that our Lord 
have our hearts, our desires, that his word would have that attitude that David prayed in Psalm 138, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. We have it. We have it accurately translated from the received text that's been there through the ages in our trusted authorized version of the Bible. We have the word of God. How blessed we are. Holy Bible, book divine, precious treasure, thou art mine. And here, what, a, what an incredible statement. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, I have the gospel in brief. In these words but in these brief words we have the central figure of the gospel we have his offices and his work and no little thing the preaching of the gospel is also called by the way the preaching of Jesus Christ like Peter John, when they were in prison for preaching, let go. They were charged not to preach the gospel. And Acts 5.42 says, They ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. He was the apostle's message. What he had come to do was the apostle's message. His glorious sovereign reign was the apostle's message. They preached Christ. The gospel identifies Jesus of Nazareth, the one who came, was born through the womb of the Virgin Mary, the one who was laid in a manger, the one who grew as we grow, felt what we feel, hurt like we hurt, experienced everything of human life, accepting sin. Taught like no one else. Those who were sent to arrest him, called them the temple police at one time, they came back, they didn't have him. They said, no man ever spake like this man. No one ever taught like he. Who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who submitted to the death of the cross, yielding into the hands of evil men, saying, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And yet accomplishing in that what God had purposed from eternity. In the redemption of the cross, in the shepherd laying down his life for his sheep at the cross, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Messiah. That means he's the anointed one. That means that all essential offices to salvation and his reign 
are occupied by him. In the Old Testament, you had prophet, priest, king, right? Now, priest and king could never be the same person. They were always different. You had priestly line that came through the Aaronic priesthood. You had the kingly line, the royal line, really, of prophecy in David's line. A priest might be a prophet. A king might be a prophet as well. But you have these three things, prophet, priest, and king. Anointed. Anointed. And Christ means the one who is anointed. It means he is the Messiah, indeed. And as the anointed possesses the sum total of all divinely appointed offices in his one person. We know that he is the prophet that was prophesied to come by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. The prophet. So that in him is the revelation of God. God speaks in his son. We're taught in Hebrews chapter 1. He is the word of the father. He is the word of God. Not only in what he proclaims, but in who he is. The word who was with God and was God. The word that was manifested unto us so that by God's grace you and I could come to know who God is in him. He is the revelation of God and the revealer of God. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. He's made known in him. And so, he can say in John 10, 36, I and my Father are one. That's, of course, when the Jews wanted to stone him because they knew what he was saying. He was claiming deity. He was claiming equality of deity with his Father. I and my Father are one. He is the prophet. He is the priest, the great high priest of his people, this one who is Christ. Faithful say, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In him is the only sacrifice that removes sin could not be removed by all those Old Testament sacrifices. Could the flow of blood never cease from those Old Testament sacrifices? They could not remove a single transgression, not a single sin. He was appointed of the Father to be the sacrifice alone that would remove sins. This man after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, 
sat down on the right hand of God, as we learn in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. Not only did he become the sacrifice for sin for his people, not only by his blood redemption does he forever wash away the sins of his own, he sends forth his Holy Spirit to call them. They come to hear his voice in the gospel. They come to hear and believe. They come to recognize the truth as it is in him. He died, rose again, and salvation's in his hands. It's totally in his sovereign hands. And he's able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by him. Seeing as the great high priest of his people, he ever makes intercession for them. Intercedes. Intercedes on behalf of all for whom he shed his precious blood. Isaiah 53, 11, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. They shall be justified. They shall be brought to a genuine conversion. They shall be brought to a repentance from sin and a real knowledge of him and a real trust in him and a faith that will secure their justification. In him, in the babe that lay in Mary's arms, in him, who was in that place where animals feed, God had sent him and he had royal blood. He was royalty. He was royalty. Those who came from far east, you remember? We don't know how many. They had three gifts. They worshipped him. Where's he that is born? King of the Jews. Where is he? They came to the house, not the manger. They came to the house and they offered their gifts. The delegation, ever how many? Three gifts. We don't say we don't know how many, but there they were, knowing that the king of the Jews had been born to worship him. In him is placed the royal rule. Not over simply earth, but heaven itself. In his exaltation, he can declare all power, authority. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He rules over all things. He is sovereign upon his throne. He is the sovereign. He exercises total sovereign government. We read that this morning when we began the service. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. 
You and I who are in Christ, who've been called and redeemed by his blood, and have been brought to know who he is and come to trust him, you and I are under his rule consciously. But he has a providence that rules all things. And he will bring all things to pass. That's why those who are in Christ don't need to get shaken up every time something happens in this fallen world. Things will happen. But he's moving toward bringing all of those whom he has redeemed and called and saved and intercedes for to be glorified with him. I can't imagine a greater glory, and I can't comprehend it, than to be made like him. I don't know there could be a greater glory than to be made like him. And to reign with him. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Well, that would branch off into another place, though. So, how wondrous. Then, Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, the one who possesses all offices in himself, prophet, priest, king. The name given at his birth to bear in human flesh we have considered extensively, of course, in a message. It declares both who he is and why he came. It's a transliteration, Jesus, from the Hebrew Joshua. Joshua means Jehovah is salvation or Jehovah saves. Jesus, the name, emphasizes the reason for he shall save his people from their sins. His name signifies God incarnate come to save. Jesus, Jehovah, come in a human body to do what no other could ever do, to save his people from their sins. You see, we have the central figure of the gospel in 1 Timothy 1.15. And not only does the gospel show the central figure and his all-comprehensive work of salvation, it also shows his willingness to do that work. There was no constraint on the second person of the triune Godhead to come with all the suffering he knew that was before him in perfect obedience to the Father. Christ Jesus came into the world. That's pretty important. It was an act of his own volition. No constraint whatsoever. He came from heaven to earth. I came down from heaven. He would say in John 6, not to do mine own will, 
but the will of him that sent me. Lo, I come. He had said prophetically 900 years before his incarnation. To do thy will. Oh my God. It was his act. It was his own act. As we have that classic and incredible passage in Philippians 2. Who being in the form of God. That is he was made known as God. In whatever way this took place before he came, the angelic host knew who he was. That's why when he came into the world, the angels worshipped him. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It was his own will to come. It was his volition. Absolutely no constraint. The gift of God the Father is his Son. And the Son came in perfect obedience and willing obedience to the Father, and he came unto us. <laughs> a child is born. Unto us. A son is given. The angel said to the shepherds. Unto you. Is born this day. In the city of David a savior. Which is Christ the Lord. He came to save us. He came to redeem us. To God. He came willing because he came loving. Loving. The world doesn't know much about love. It has a supercilious type of love. It has a love that can turn to hate quick as anything. It has an erotic type of love, it calls. There's nothing more than lust. It has infatuation. That has its purposes. But there has to be something much, much deeper. He, Paul, wrote in Galatians, loved me and gave himself for me. You know, that transformed that old Pharisee, that old chief of sinners, that old one who was a zealot hated his name before wanted his people stamped out. And then he came to know a love that loved him in spite of him. Loved him not because of anything in Paul, but only because he chose to do so. There's nothing in a poor, needy sinner worthy of God's love. Nor does he find anything therein to which his love can be drawn. It's sovereign. That means it proceeds from himself. How he could love a vile sinner like me, I cannot fully comprehend. But you know what? 
I heard as a little boy over and over in the Southern Baptist Church I attended for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life that's incredible love it's incredible it's unspeakable really it's drawing oh my we'll get to some more about this later he came willing came of his own volition because he came loving loving with the supreme and self-sacrificing self-giving love that love branches upward and downward to the father to the father he came in perfect obedience to the father this is the father's will he would say over and over this is the father's will you love god you love the lord jesus christ how's that shown according to him you keep his commandments well he loved his father perfectly perfectly and when the time came that night of Calvary Eve. When he was facing the cross. He knew what it was all about. He knew exactly what he was going to face. He knew every pain that he was going to suffer. He dreaded. That awful reality that he would experience. Separation from the father because of sin. And yet what does he say? to his apostles that night. Hereafter I will not speak much with you. For the prince of this world, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. I love the Father. Let us go. Where is he going? To Gethsemane, to the cross, to the greatest suffering any ever suffered. To spend those hours suffering all the pangs of hell that you and I should suffer. In our place, dear saint, in our place. That love upward, perfect love to the Father with all his heart, soul, mind. Which we should do in loving God. But we don't. We fail. Downward that love. Downwards the most unworthy of objects. Sinners. Those who positively turn from God to their own way. Prove their hatred in transgression. And would never ever have come to him had he not come. To seek and to save that which was lost. 
Christ, Jesus, came into the world to save sinners. That's no little statement, is it? We speak of God's satisfying his justice on behalf of sinners in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, of course, that all of the demands of divine justice were met in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ in his sacrifice, in what he suffered. All the demands of God's justice were completely met by him. He satisfied that justice on behalf of all who would effectually be called and believe on him. That word satisfied is also applied to the complete inward fullness of joy derived from the certain securing of salvation of the chosen by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. The full satisfaction is derived because the objects of Christ's redemption are the objects of his wondrous sovereign love. That's what you read in the pages of Paul's writings. You read his heart. That's what you read when you find that he's the willing servant of Jesus Christ. Though he knows as he was taught clearly when he was converted, when he was saved by God's grace, how many things he would have to suffer. And yet he was willing to do so. Whatever the cost. Because he knew the cost of his redemption. And he knew what was behind it. He loved me. And gave himself for me. And he knew what was before him. He's going to be with Christ forever. And all of this suffering is going to be momentary and over. <laughs> In the gospel, the gospel addresses one condition, none other. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The gospel addresses sinners. Many years ago, listening to an old powerful evangelist named Rolf Barnard, I heard him say more than once. He'd been going all over the country trying to find a sinner. A sinner. Oh, people come to some kind of outward profession, but they've never been a sinner. Well, I mean, they are, but they don't know it. Like one preacher I heard was an assistant pastor pretty good sized Sovereign Grace Church. I guess it was Sovereign Grace because he was Sovereign Grace in a conference one time. He said, I have to tell you, my, peace, my pastor died. Only he doesn't know it. 
mean, a lot of people, they were cursorily acknowledged being a sinner, but they've never been brought under conviction. They don't really know what that means. They've never been broken. They've never come to see themselves vile, undone, lost. You're not a sinner, by the way, because you sin. Listen carefully. You sin because you're a sinner. Because it's your nature to sin. We came in this world going astray. We came into this world, as the scriptures teach, speaking lies. We came into this world selfish, self-centered. Vile, unclean. You see, the tree is known by its fruit. Some might say, well, you know, I've lived, I've tried my best to live a moral life. Well, so did the man who wrote these words before he was saved by God's wondrous grace. So did he, who called himself the chief of sinners. He wrote to the Philippians, if he wanted to boast, if they wanted to boast, he could boast. One of those things he said he could boast in is touching the righteousness which is in the law blameless. In other words, nobody could put their finger on him and say, Paul, you've broken this law. You've broken that law. Was he righteous? No. No. He was covetous, man. He was covetous. That's what brought him under conviction. I'd not known lust except the law has said, Thou shalt not covet. He was pride-filled. He was a pride-filled Pharisee. <laughs> Nobody could touch that outwardly, though, like they thought the Pharisees were righteous. Yet all that he had so determinedly done in the days of his youth done in pride and the pride of his own self-confidence for his own glory coveting his reputation among men that which makes men sinners which lay deep down in the soul which is there in the immoral as well as those who strive to be moral it's just this. God himself spoke through Jeremiah. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. You see, sin is fatal. It's fatal. And there's only one cure for that disease of sin. One, none other. Christ also hath once suffered for sins. 
the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The saints worship in Revelation 5, 9, Thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, people, nation. Peter could write, drawing from Isaiah 53, whose own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes you were, she you were healed, for you are sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Healed. He's the son of righteousness who would come with healing in his wings. We know from the New Testament and from the gospel how that healing indeed would come. And all of this, the apostle writes in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners it's true it's absolutely certain in all of its parts worthy of your complete trust and mine total trust to be welcomed, not simply with acceptation, but with all acceptation. This all may be applied in two ways. It's all true. It's the testimony of God. It's what God has given, made known. You remember, that's what Paul told the Corinthians who prided themselves in their intellect and their philosophical, uh, philosophical speculations and so forth, being among the Greeks and Romans. I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. God's testimony. We studied in 1 John 5.10, He that believeth on him hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. Because he believeth not the record that God gave of his son. That's pretty solemn, pretty serious business. To be under the word of God and not believe it. <laughs> the most serious thing there is. This truth is all comprehended in one glorious person who is himself the sum and substance of the gospel who tells us I am the way. There's no other way to the Father. The truth all the truth about God you'll find in him. And the life. And only they who have the son have life. Then, the work he did on the cross supplies the only remedy, none other, 
for the fatal disease of sin. The intensity of the desperate condition and eternal danger is only measured by the cost it took to deliver from it by the cross. Want to know how horrendous sin is? Look at the cross. Look at what Christ suffered. Look when God spared not his own son when he was in our place. Listen to him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He suffered all the pains of hell that you and I should suffer on the cross. And you must accept it with all acceptation. If you have a disease and there's a cure for it and it's in your medicine cabinet, what good does it do if you don't take it? Absolutely not. You might know it's there. You might realize, hey, this is, <laughs> this is that which has cured many, many people. I've got the same disease. You can know that. You can go on the internet and figure out what all the ingredients are in that. Or ask Mary, she used to be a pharmacist. You know everything about it. But until you reach and take it, pour it, take it in, not going to do you a bit of good. Right? Absolutely. There is a balm in Gilead. There's a cure for the fatal disease of sin that permeates the whole of being but you must wholly, without reserve, with all of your being, intellect, desire, will, receive it into your very inner being. Trusting completely the great physician and him alone. You know, it's proven in the experience of uncountable believers. Now, experience is not the highest proof, but it is a proof. That's why it's good to give your testimony. If you've been saved by God's grace, you tell how. You tell who saved you. You tell why he came. The church of Jesus Christ marches to this day for one reason, and one reason only, because he lives. Because God raised him from the dead. Because he reigns. Because he promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And she marches on. Until she sees him in glory. 
Paul, in essence, says here that the gospel that saved the chief of sinners is able to save all who find it certain and take it with all acceptation. If you and I have that same disease, and I've taken the medicine and I've become cured, isn't it but the part of wisdom that you take it? You know, it was David's experience that moved him to recommend the same to others. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Blessed is the man that trusts in, in him. It was one given the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ who said to his taunters, one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. It was an Andrew that said to his brother Simon, we have found the Messiah. It was Philip who said to Nathaniel, we have found him. And then to a doubting Nathaniel, come and see. Come and see. Taste. Take. Believe. Receive. Trust. And God has cured your soul of that fatal disease of sin. And you need to be careful to make that known wherever you are. In your family, your acquaintances, workplace. Because there are others to be cured. There are others to be saved. May God bless the ministry of his holy word.